Welcome everyone to the podcast. It's Andre from Mental Health. I'm here with Vanessa. Uh, we're taking this conference beyond the room. It's the Zero Suicide Alliance third national conference here in London. The hashtag is ZSAConf20. And we are here with Dr. Rena Dutta from King's College London. She's a senior clinical lecturer and consultant psychiatrist who's done a talk today on using data science to understand suicidality and self-harm. Rena, thanks a lot for joining us. Um, you spoke about risk assessment tools versus data-driven methods to study suicide. Can you explain, if possible, in a way that normal humans would understand why that's important? Okay, Andre, yep. Risk assessment tools are what mental health professionals have been using for many, many years. They're the traditional way of documenting whether a patient that comes to see us may be at risk of a future self-harm attempt or suicide or another act. Say, for example, they might, it may be um, harm to others or self-neglect. Um, and there have been various attempts to standardise it and it's quite tick-boxy often. And that has always really concerned me because I do feel that people cannot be encapsulated by boxes. We need to consider each patient individually and that's what's really drawn me to data-driven approaches to really understand from the data itself, from the heterogeneous, quite noisy data that's out there, what is happening for individuals who are present to mental health services um, using all the data that's available for them and that's what data-driven approaches allow us to do. Just to say, um, because we had a brief conversation online and just to highlight it for the podcast, as a mental health nurse, I really hear everything that you're saying and um, we've been talking briefly about the fact that um, a tick box approach might highlight some of the main risk factors but it doesn't take into account a person's subjective experience. So, for example, you know, a breakdown in a relationship might be major for one person, it might not be major for another person. Um, so it's not always possible to predict risk just based on a tick-box approach, which has obviously been quite common within mental health. And the other issue for me is that um, scars from risk assessments are often used in ways to exclude people from services or to... Um, or to help them access services. For example, people who are in crisis that haven't been able to access services and clinicians, you know, giving people higher scores so that they can access services. So I just really wanted to highlight those points that kind of fit with what you're saying, really. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, uh, Vanessa. I mean, I think the, the point I'm also trying to get across on Twitter today is that suicidality is an incredibly dynamic process it varies minute by minute hour by hour and the trouble with the whole concept of keeping or filing away into a paper record or an electronic record a risk assessment is that it's just a static piece of information for that one um, that time that particular time whereas it needs to be much more fluid than that we need to have updates um, of what people are going through so like you say there could be traumatic times in their lives um, and definitely I do think that there's an issue that if there's thresholds involved then this scoring system is just anathema really to me as a practicing clinician I really feel it's very important that we that we be much more narrative in our description and um, you know, don't try to copy-paste things through the records. This is another big um, issue that I have, that, you know, patients shouldn't be... Um, they're people. We're all people. We're, we all potentially are patients, and we need to be described accurately, and things don't need to go through the record repetitively that perhaps prejudice or stigmatise the type of care um, individuals receive in the future.
What are you doing to use data science to better understand suicidality and self-harm? Well, we're very fortunate. Um, as you know, I work for the uh, King's College London and the Morsi Hospital, and we have this really fantastic system called the CRIS Register Interactive Search Facility, or CRIS. And what it essentially allows us to do um, as a researchers is to study um, everything that's put into the electronic health record, having removed any potential identifying information. So um, there's a process which has gone through rigorous um, testing and data governance procedures as well. And we now study what we call the pseudonymized records of individuals, looking not just at structured administrative fields about kind of when people have been referred into our hospital or services, um, what's happened to them since then, but also to study the electronic health record free text notes. And that's the area I've got most interested in in the last few years, using natural language processing to look at how clinicians describe patients and um, look at how their language changes according to the degree of risk that individuals are experiencing. And we, we tweeted a bunch of references for natural language processing research and machine learning research and also a lot of the work you've been involved in. So I'd encourage anybody on Twitter to have a look at the hashtag and to follow up some of those references. You also had a question put to you, uh, Rena, by Professor Sonia Livingston from LSE this morning that I promised to put to you. Um, she asked, can data science guarantee privacy, privacy protection for vulnerable people? Is that something that you're worried about? I think it would be very irresponsible of me and remiss to say that it doesn't worry me because, of course, at my core, I'm a clinician. I'm also a mum, and I'm aware that my child could also become involved in studies. In fact, he has become involved in some research too. So I think I'm really aware of the issues involved here. We, um, as researchers, are very careful in how we manage the data. It's all um, analysed, as I mentioned in my talk, in a um, safe, behind a secure wall, um, through the NHS system that we have. But in the future, my work is going to be looking at social media data uh, and smartphone data, which I know is Professor Livingston's area of research. And I would be delighted to speak with her more because I know that this is an evolving area um, attracting media interest as well. And I think we really need to hit the nail on the head here and make sure that this is right so that um, pe young people can be involved in studies that we desperately need to know how these sorts of things are impacting on their mental health. But of course, we also need to have informed consent and be careful that the data is held confidentiality and that there is no risk to individuals. So I'd be delighted to pursue that further because it's a real area of interest on my mind at the moment. It's really interesting because we recently ran some Twitter chats for Zero Suicide Alliance and one of the issues that people contacted me about privately um, was around, um, well, the whole issue of social media and, um, and not only people um, using social media to express themselves in a potentially suicidal way and other people knowing how to respond but obviously also the whole issue around privacy that just because somebody says online they feel suicidal doesn't mean that they're going to act on it and people feeling that it would be invading their personal space to actually you know have that monitored and obviously that's been a conversation that's gone on for a few years as well now on 
social media and how we kind of balance that. So. You've, you've kind of summarised my concerns as well. I think the key thing about what I'm doing in my future research in this area is involving young people and carers right from the outset. So we currently have a study um, just starting up called the 3SYP study, um, which is um, stands for Social Media Smartphone Use and Self-Harm in Young People. This is funded by the MRC and the Mental Research, uh, sorry, Medical Research Foundation. And um, what we're trying to, to do in that is to be able to investigate um, this data prospectively over a period of one year. And I think that it is very important that um, we have those who have got lived experience who help us steer the type of research that's appropriate and that's acceptable um, to young people so that we can actually study this um, properly in a way that is sensitive but actually comes up with the answers as well because we need to understand what mechanisms are underpinning um, potential concerns. Um, research to date is basically looking at secondary use of data that's already available not specifically to answer these questions about you know what's happening with social media use and mental health and does it in fact affect um, the way in which young people uh, experience their mental well-being these days does it impact on their suicidality um, these are all unanswered questions and I think the only way to answer it is to have studies that are well formulated from the outset um, but also adequate care has to be given to the ethics of the study and um, and also to the voice of the young people and indeed carers as well. Data science is one of those areas isn't it in mental health where there's a lot of excitement and a lot of bluster on social media. What do you think realistically we can achieve over the next decade or so? What are the real opportunities in this field? Okay so this is the crystal ball question. Um, it's so difficult to know exactly how far we're going to be able to get, but I do think that this is an incredibly interesting time. Um, I'm very excited by the fact that um, so many people can interact with us. You know, the world has got much smaller in terms of uh, scale because we have the internet to be able to communicate with one another and be able to learn from one another. I'm doing work at the moment in London but I think it has applicability um, elsewhere, so global research and I think one of the one of the key areas that is that um, has been highlighted by some of um, my colleagues who work abroad is that you know the smartphone is readily accessible in developing countries. In fact, people can access smartphones more than they can mental health services. So it's got a real role. We need to harness it for future benefit. And I think that um, putting our scientific heads together and working on that and working with people to work in their best interests is, is the way to go. How far that will be in 10 years, I wouldn't like to forecast, but, um, but that's how I think at the moment. Brilliant work. We should go and get some lunch before it all goes. Thanks a lot for joining us, Rena. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.